Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. There's always one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't, today is August the 4th, 2022, and this is episode 31, 38 of the Survival Podcast. It is Thursday, Thursday, Thursday. That means it's time for an expert counsel Q&A show. And guys... I need questions for the experts. The best way to find out all the experts and the stuff that they can tell you about is to go to the survivalpodcast.com and then under the about tab you'll find a tab that says meet the expert council. You can see everybody there, all their smiling faces and all the stuff that they're experts in and send me a question, TSPC expert in the subject line. Uh, give me your question for the council member. Say like my question is for expert council member Jeff Lawton, Ken Barry, Doc Bones, Tim, Tim the Tool Man, whoever, right? My question is, one sentence for your question. If you need more than one sentence to ask your question, you haven't figured it out yet, hit return a couple times, put a space break in there, and then give me all of the details you feel are relevant. Give me as much detail as you want, but nail the question up top, bottom line up front style, one sentence question. You have two questions, it's fine. Put a space between them. Make them two separate questions. That I, I, I work with that. Here's what I've got for you today. Dr. Ron Paul <clears throat> and his crew at the Liberty, uh, on, uh, with the Liberty Highlights for the week, Dan and Ron tag team the first two points. Uh, one is, what does America actually gain by poking Russia and China? What, what, what does it do for us? And then Dan and uh, Ron also kind of tag team the difference between the Pelosi and the Gingrich Taiwan visits. And I'll tell you why I don't really care about that that much. I'll, I'll tell you why I think we've been, we've been, we, we have the problem we do with China today because we've tolerated China's bullshit for as long as we have. Okay, I, 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 I will say Taiwan is an independent nation, and if we would just have done that from the very beginning, instead of being a bunch of pussies the entire time, a lot of this we wouldn't be dealing with today. Now, it is... A little more difficult because we've, well, we've been pussies for 70 years. Anyway, Chris Rossini will talk about the Inflation Reduction Act and who do they think you're, they're kidding. Uh, I, I'll tell you it's a good question if you're talking about informed people, but the reality is a lot of people. Don't underestimate the level of stupid in the United States today. Bonhoeffer is not just someone that was good at pointing out the reality of his time. He was also in some ways a prophet. Nick Ferguson, I'm not going to explain what this is. I'm just going to give you the little plucky thing that I came up with for the bullet point. Using terrorism to make your goats respect boundaries from Nick, Nick Ferguson. Tim the Tool Man Cook will talk about keeping track of tools when you're working on multiple job sites and making a living in a low-income town as a handyman. Doc Bones will talk about the problem of having to go and not being able to go. Yep, constipation. But specifically when it's because you've switched to living on long-term preps, all those rice and beans and stuff. Patrick Rohrman will talk about choosing a belt grinder for knife making, but I think that belt grinders have a lot of utility. And then I have a segment today, and it came from my discussion with Guy Swan and Brian Harrington uh, on Tuesday. And I realized something as I listened to that episode myself again, because I picked up, I've listened to it twice, and I was in it. That's how deep it is. Hiding in plain sight is the new Galt's Gulch. I want you to think about this. 
We have run our mouth in the Liberty community about Galt's Gulch for as long as, well, the concept's been around from the book from which it came had been published. It struck me, who is John Galt? Who is John Galt? Galt's Gulch, well, in a lot of people's minds, it's not what it was in the book. The book, the book makes it out that, well, all the industrious people left. But it, the, the concept of Galt's Gulch in modern times has been made. We're going to all have sort of giant libertarian communities, our citadels, whatever. We're all going to go there, and we're going to be industrious uh, away from everybody else. It doesn't work, and it was never what was in Ayn Rand's book. The concept of Galt's Gulch was the, the, the true industrious people left and did nothing. They just went away and did nothing until you know it started to hurt when all the industrious people were gone. It's a neat concept, but as I've said many times with books, often books get the thing right but the how wrong or the implementation wrong because what's necessary for the thing to happen doesn't exist yet. You know, the idea that, and I can't remember the uh, sci-fi writer, I said it was H.G. Wells, it was, it was somebody else. Some sci-fi writer in the 1800s talked about satellites and said they would be made out of bricks. I don't know if he even called them satellites, but they were basically satellites. They would bounce a signal out of space, right? So just the idea of, or wood, or something like that, whatever it was, it, it, it wasn't doable at the time, right? We, and, and, but he knew the idea was sound. This is what I think we have with Galt's Gulch. Galt's Gulch, in the mind of the original, was simply everybody that's productive just is rich anyway and disappears for a while and doesn't produce anything. The modern version is we all go to our little libertarian utopias and then we don't have, we have to be able to interact with other parts of society. The, technolo the technology was missing. That's what I'm going to talk about today. And I think it'll make a lot of sense. Some of you are going to have a mental block to it. I, I ask you to... Uh, we, we've talked about this recently. I've brought this up, and, and guests have brought this quote up. It's funny, like it, it, things just kind of have synchronicity. The true mark of intelligence is to be able to entertain an idea without necessarily accepting it or rejecting it out of hand. To simply say, I'm going to entertain this idea. I'm going to examine this idea and see if it has merit, and then take from it that which makes sense and reject which I'm not ready for or doesn't make sense to me. And that's what I'm going to ask you to do when I get to my segment. Um, before we do that, let me let me remind you guys, we are doing a troll sale, and the troll sale ends on Sunday at midnight Central Standard Time. I believe that when you run a sale that, and you say this is when it ends, it either does end or you have no integrity. I've talked about this before. I don't care if your dog eats your discount code. If you want to jump in on the troll sale and get the member support brigade for 30 bucks a month, get all the great discounts and everything else, from the troll sale at 30 bucks a month and lock that rate in for as long as you keep your account, you need to do it by Sunday. And I will give, I was going to give an update today. I think I'll give an update Monday when it's over. How many people dogpiled on against the trolls and helped me monetize trolls? I also want to read a few booster grams. I'm just going to go straight off of the, my wallet page in uh, Fountain and just read a few of them here. Uh, MJ Moon has, says, says Thanks for the brilliant conversation. This is so exciting. The orange pill is a blessed white pill. Uh, it, it boosted 420 sats. Roth bit. Not sure if you visited this site yet, but you should check it out. 
Stacker News, it lets you tip people for posting, and it's at stacker-news. I have not seen that site. I'll check it out. 594 sats. Uh, Lily Farm Food boosted 5,938 sats. So it's probably more like 7,500 because that got split. Uh, damn good episode with Slim yesterday. You were in the zone. The collision of Bitcoin and homesteading self-reliance movement, the seventh generation thinking, has rewired my brain. Gone is the poverty mindset. That makes me so happy. When people tell me they've given up poverty mindset, that makes me so happy. Uh, my kids are going to know how to grow their own food, build a house, process animals, and have sound money. Call me naive, but we're going to effing win. If Bitcoin is the lighthouse in the storm, I'm the boat rowing my ass off. There you go. That's the right attitude. Uh, prep to adventure, 792 sats. Talking about yesterday's episode, prepping with special needs kids. Uh, I like to hear shit at the fan talk once in a while, even if the blue helmets aren't coming to put us in camps and a CMA isn't going to put us back in the Stone Age. It's fun mental exercise to think, how would we handle without access to fill in the blank? Uh, let me see, just maybe one more we'll pick here. Uh, Freeman, 062, mind blown, 2,969 sats. Thanks, man. Uh, He's talking about the, the episode I did with Guy, Brian, and myself on Tuesday of the Bitcoin Breakout. Yeah, we're going to tie back into that. And I'm going to try to... I know some of you are like, Damn it, Jack. You said we Bitcoin Breakout. You, I'm not. I'm not dragging Bitcoin into this. I'm just going to talk about the tech. It, it, you know, you need programmable money to do what I'm going to talk about. So if you have another form of programmable money that'll do it, then we can talk about it that way. I'm just going to talk about the tech. I'm going to talk about... When I get to my segment... There was a term that Brian used, and I'll drop it on you right now, and then we'll go through the experts, and then I'll come back and we'll do that. But he used it like, oh, I bet at least ten times. Brain drain. And that's where we're going to start out. What is a brain drain? And it doesn't involve an individual. It involves a group of people leaving one place and going to another. And that is a true Galt's Gulch. And what if we could have Galt's Gulch, but nobody left... They were just no longer visible as to their productivity to those who have remained outside of the gulch. That's what we'll talk about. Before that, though, let's hear from Ron Paul, Dan McAdams, and Chris Rossini. Well, Taiwan is 7,600 miles away from the U.S., right? So it's a vital <laughs> national interest. Nancy Pelosi is the highest-ranking uh, U.S. government official to visit Taiwan in, in 25 years. The last was Newt Gingrich. Uh, the, the Chinese have said all the way up to we may shoot a plane out of the sky. Um, now they've just announced when she landed that they're going to conduct live fire military drills in the area, plus targeted military actions, quote unquote. Uh, so Biden apparently didn't wasn't too keen on this even even Biden. <laughs> the U.S. military, the Pentagon wasn't super keen on it. So I think the question is, well, what's the point? You know, she went there, she put her, she poked the Chinese in their eye. What's the point? Now, here's what she would say. Let's put up the next. This is her tweet when she got on the ground. She said, our delegation's visit to Taiwan honors America's unwavering commitment to supporting Taiwan's vibrant democracy. Our discussions with Taiwan leadership reaffirm our support for our partner and promote our shared interests, etc., etc. 
our democracy against autocracy. So she's over there, she being Pelosi, over there and just sort of provoking. I see it. They, they just look like they're provoking. For, for what reason? What if the same thing uh, of, of these flying flying planes close to borders and, and, uh, and ships and all this sort of thing, what if all this activity would be in the Gulf of Mexico, yeah. you know, uh, just... Just at the very limits of Houston, Texas, yeah. we wouldn't be very happy with that. All of a sudden, uh, it would only be those invaders. But it's hard for people who think in terms of believing in their country and want to do the right thing. It's very easy to not want to blame your own country. But it isn't so much who's for us to find out who to blame. It's, it's try to find the truth. And, and it's to reveal it and, and try to stop these confrontations. And, you know, as a perfect example of what you always say, there's only a uniparty in Washington, especially when it comes to war and foreign policy. Mitch McConnell, the Senate Minority Leader, and 25 other Republican senators issued a statement yesterday. Now, they didn't say, hey, take it easy, Pelosi. You know, what do we need this war for? No. They sent a statement saying, good job, Nancy, you really own the Chinese. And here's what the statement says. We support Speaker of the House of Representatives Nancy Pelosi's trip to Taiwan. For decades, members of the U.S. Congress, including previous speakers of the House, traveled to Taiwan. Now, that is disingenuous. And, and I can't believe that someone as astute as McConnell, evil but astute, doesn't know this. Yes, 25 years ago, Gingrich did go to Taiwan as Speaker of the House. And it was very, very uh, uh, criticized back then. However, there's a little detail that's very important. He made an official trip to China first. He first landed on Chinese soil, had an official trip, an official visit with China as China. And then from that, he went to Taiwan. So he paid his respects in Beijing first, and then he did a side trip to Taiwan. That's not what Pelosi did. Pelosi put her thumb in their eyes uh, and hit Taiwan first without going to China at all. You could say, well, we can go wherever we want. We're America. Okay, but as we are learning from all of these mistakes from Iraq and Afghanistan, there are consequences to doing stupid things. You know, this is turning out to be another example of my complaint about too much bipartisanship. You know, they come back and the hawks, the, the, the militant Republican hawks, uh, might give lip service to a little complaint here and there, but they're not really upset about about this stuff because they know this isn't a road to peace. They know that it did exactly what it did. They have to know what that was. This was a pure antagonism. Much like those people who are unfortunate to live in the Soviet Union, uh, you know, it's easy to find out the truth when everything that the government says is a lie. So, you know, I was out yesterday, and I, I was just checking my phone. I see Inflation Reduction Act. And the first thought in my mind is, oh, geez, they're going to make inflation even worse. And I didn't have time to look into it at the time. And when I got home, then I did look into it. And, of course, they're going to make inflation worse. $700-plus billion in government spending? I mean, that is the problem that we're facing. You know, we had all these trillions and trillions of dollars printed up by the Fed that the government spent that it did not have, and now we have all this money sloshing around chasing fewer goods. And we have fewer goods because they did those useless and harmful lockdowns, which shouldn't have never been done. But then they're going to make it even worse than that. They want to raise taxes on corporations. 
Now think about this. If you need, have fewer goods, you need more goods. Well, how do you have more goods? You have to expand your production. Well, how do you expand your production? With your profits. You need your profits to expand and to create more, to bring down inflation. Government's going to steal that away and go and waste it, you know, on themselves. So it's all inflationary what they're doing. Of course, they're going to make it worse. All you have to do is look at the name of the bill, and it's really a sad joke, but we have to live through it. So let's – I know I said some – I had some pretty tough-sounding language uh, about – the whole Pelosi-Gingrich things and how Gingrich went to China first and basically, I'm going to start, I say bent the knee. I'm not backing Pelosi here. I think we're in a, a time of our own making and things need to be handled with a modicum of, uh, what are the word I'm looking for, tact right now because of what we've, we've done. We've also, clearly we are in a, an incredibly weakened position from a military standpoint, from an economic standpoint, etc. This is not the time to be poking China. But this crap that we have pulled, this lukewarm bullshit for 70 plus years now, uh, China is an independent country. And if, if their biggest ally won't just say that period and tell China to go screw, then what's the point? What's the point? Well, the point is we like having problems. Government loves having problems. But what we, have, we should have been doing the entire time is telling China, China, guess what? They're, they're an independent country. They have their own flag, their own government. You don't have a say on how they live. Tough shit. Deal with it. And there was a time not that long ago <coughs> where we were a lot stronger and China was a lot weaker. But we didn't do it. We had to play pussyfoot BS around. And the truth is, Taiwan is an independent nation, and any American government leader or not, should be able to go to Taiwan any time the hell they want to, and China should have absolutely nothing to say about it. The problem we have right now with China isn't so much a force-on-force military problem. That would be good. I don't want it. Don't get me wrong. But it's not the problem. The problem is China can shut our country down. I talked about this with Nicole and John on our, 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 uh, our coffee chat on Tuesday morning. All China has to do To win a war with the United States without firing a single missile, without dropping a single bomb, without firing a single .22 long rifle bullet, is go. You know what? I don't think you need. Uh, I don't think you need penicillin anymore. I don't think you need uh, ethromycin or tetracycline anymore. I don't. I don't. I don't think you need your drugs. And and we don't think you need all these computer chips too. We get a ton of computer chips for Taiwan. That's part of why their strategic importance. But we get a ton of chips. Not necessarily the top quality ones. We get a ton of computer chips from China. So you don't need those. If you just think about the vast amount of shit that fills up giant containers and comes to America that America literally can't function without. Your green economy, oh, that's great. Where do you get most of your, your solar panels and all your shit to build all your green energy with? Oh, that comes from China. And even when you hear, well, XYZ Solar Company is a U.S. company, and they build their solar panels in America. No, they don't. They assemble them in America. If you look at the sheer amount of things that we are dependent on China for, that's the danger. The Chinese are going to now do what I said they would do Tuesday. If you go listen to that episode with, uh, with Nicole and John, I think Nicole has it out on her podcast by now. 
that they wouldn't, they would just drive around back and forth, get real close, try to provoke something, make a big show. That's what they did. Pelosi flew in with 87,000 planes and ships and everything, like she's really as important as she thinks she is. And then she left, and as soon as she left, China goes on massive maneuvers, live fire bullshit, storming in and out of the strait, flying around in international waters, which they have every right to do, by the way. But they ain't going to do shit. They're not going to go bombing Taiwan because they don't have to. You bomb Taiwan, then we bomb you, then we have an engagement, and, well, they're so far over there, and our Navy, this and that. Yeah, it all still sucks. The, the, the issue isn't China doesn't have the stones to do it. It's that there's a better play. The better play is you don't need your stuff anymore. It's like a reverse sanction. It's a reverse. And I've heard the idiots in our government talking all kinds of smack that, you know, that China should have learned their lesson from what happened to Russia. Jack shit happened to Russia. Russia has all the cards right now. Because Russia, like China, is an export economy, which means it sucks for you economically when you have your export capabilities pushed back on, but in the end it means people are dependent on you, so one way or another they're still going to buy from you. But it also means you can cut off the export, and it also means you can survive without your imports. If you are a net export economy, you have a surplus of domestic production. The United States is a net import economy. We have a shortage of domestic production, and we have no idea and no plan and no way to change that in the short term. None. And no will to do so, and no desire to do so. And the people actually in charge of you, your actual rulers in the oligarchy, want it that way, so it's going to stay that way unless we do something about it. And I don't mean by voting, because that ain't going to do shit. Because 95 senators just voted to let Finland and Norway into NATO, which serves no interest to the United States. The worst shit is bipartisan shit. Okay, there's a jack quote. Whenever you hear bipartisan, that means you're really getting it up the butt. We've done this to ourselves. We've made ourselves weak in front of China in so many ways. And now we kowtow to them. And now we kowtow to them. And a United States leader should be able to go to any nation that leader wants to go to at any time they want to go to, as long as they're welcomed by the government of that nation. And I say that being an anarchist that doesn't want a state in the first place. It's just reality. And we should have never let it get to where it is. But we did, and now we have to deal with it. Moving on from there, let's hear about terrorism. Terrorism. No, not the kind where they fly planes into buildings or whatever. No, 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 no. Goat terrorism. I could take some connotations on due to some stereotypes from Afghanistan. No, 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 no. Terrorism against goats. Nick Ferguson. It'll make sense when he tells you what it is. Hey there, Nick Ferguson with Homegrown Liberty here with an answer on goat-proof fencing. It's easy to do despite everyone saying you can't. All right, this one is, uh, thanks, Jack. This is either for Nick F. or Nicole S. Try not to laugh too hard. Is there such a thing as goat-proof fence? 
details. We are looking to add either goats or possibly Dorper sheep to our homestead in central Missouri, primarily for dairy with a meat yield. A neighbor is raising goats, and we love the idea of sharing stud services with them. However, we have jobs in town and would like to be reasonably sure our animals will stay home while we are away up to 10 hours per day. We have an outbuilding for shelter and would like to build a secure enclosure adjacent to it for protection from our rather large local coyote population. Thanks in advance, Craig Puckett. That name sounds familiar. I did a consult for some Puckets, but I think they were in Texas. Uh, anyways, first, you mentioned a rather large local coyote problem. You're going to need at least one livestock guardian dog, if not a pair of them, if you have a lot of coyotes in the area. Um, they are not that expensive compared to losing six or seven or eight or all of your sheep in one afternoon or night. So... I'd suggest buying from a working farm and hopefully get a dog that's two years old. Most likely you won't be able to find one. If not, then get a three-month-old. That's fine. You'll just need to learn what kinds of things you need to do to train the pup up. So to answer the goat-proof fence thing, is there such a thing? Well, it all comes down to being smarter than a goat. If you train them well, you can do like I did and... Uh, I mean, I could let my whole herd of goats, 20-something animals, out to temporarily graze a new paddock of brush with a fence that didn't even have any fence posts. Not a single fence post. Just two strands of mason twine that just kind of went around a whole big area of brush. Yep, that's it. A couple strings of twine. They didn't touch it because they were well-trained. Does that sound goat-proof? Now, of course, I would never trust something like that for an extended period of time, but for an afternoon, to have animals that didn't even challenge something that just looked like electric fence is a big deal. So, here's the deal. Every person I've ever talked to who's had problems with their livestock getting out of an electric fence, and this is like 10 20 years that I've talked to people about this stuff and any other fence um, that they've had problems with livestock getting out of is the stock don't respect the barrier. I drew, I, I grew up with dairy goats and we had electric fence. Uh, I started taking care of my family's goats at 10 years old. I've had goats for years as an adult. I can't remember how many years and I've got goats now. So when someone says their goats get out of their electric fence, Every single time, I'm not exaggerating, every single gosh dang time, they tell me the same sob story. They don't realize it is, but it is. We talk about how much juice their fence is putting out, and I'll ask them, well, how many joules is your discharge on it? And they'll say something like 1.2 or 1.8 or 1 point something, or maybe 2 point something. Guys, a small fence needs a minimum of 3 joule discharge. I would never run anything smaller than that. Never. It's worthless. If you have a larger area, rocky or sandy soil, dry periods, you need a minimum of six to eight joules. If you're fencing 20 plus acres, guys, I would get a 12 joule energizer or bigger. Your fence should be so terrifying to touch that you'll unplug the energizer. You'll hold the cord in your hand. You know there is no physical way, no way that that fence could have energy in it. And you should still be viscerally 
terrified to reach down and touch the wire. You should almost get a chill of terror reaching down to touch that wire that you know it's physically impossible for it to shock you. That's it. I'm telling you, it's as simple as that. Get enough juice to do the job and keep it plugged in. Don't waste your money on a solar energizer. Get an AC plug-in energizer. That's the ticket. You should put a strand at the bottom of the fence, a couple inches off the ground to keep animals from pushing under, one at shoulder height to keep them from rubbing on the fence, and one dead level or an inch or two higher than the top of the fence to keep them from pushing the fence down. Of course, you'll probably need to start them out in a training pen. I don't really have time to go into all of that, Um, but it's super simple and easy. It all comes down to sheer terror and respect for the boundary. Uh, If you just do that three-strand system and you have enough of a fence and enough of a charger, you probably don't even need to train them to it. Just let them experience it. Um, Yeah. Their uh, electric fences are psychological barriers. The physical fences are great, but only as long as the animals are happy staying inside it. They will bust it down. Electric is the way to go. Thanks for the great question. I'm Nick Ferguson. Do good things. I'll, I'll tell you what. It's a, it, it solves both problems, and it's with all stock. Having, having that voltage up to where it really hurts to where it scares you if you've ever been popped by a fence that's hot like it needs to be hot you know exactly what he's talking about but there's something else it does if if you've never worked with electric fences before i think what people don't realize is they don't just like stay on that could actually be really dangerous if they did they pop so there's a frequency it's like pop 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 like about that's about the, the cadence of it right so it's on off on off on off and, you know, you can, that means you, if you touch it at the right millisecond, you're not going to get popped, but then you will. And when you get popped, you're like, wow. Well, when you have that fence that hot and you do what Nick said and you leave it on, the other thing that happens is, you know, all this, we have to clear the fence line. The weeds are going to get up. No, it doesn't happen. When the weeds are just barely touching that, the grass is just barely touching and it's going pop, pop. It kills the weeds. They dry off and, and they don't grow up onto the wire and create a short. That's Greg Judy 101 right there. Anyway, next up, let's hear from Tim, the tool man, on two different things. One, kitty being track of your tools when you're working multiple job sites and making a living in a low-income town where people don't want to pay for your service. Hey, guys, tool man Tim here coming back at you from the workshop to answer some more questions for the expert council. So let's dive right in. Today I've got a twofer, uh, both questions from Andy that he sent me over on Telegram. So first one, he says, hey Tim, I'm a day late and a dollar short as usual, but I got a question for you sometime, or point me to it if you've already talked about it someplace. How do you handle working in multiple places? I've got my shop, my barn, out and about projects, around the farm, and when I travel to work at other people's places, do you organize things so they're easy to get to in your shop and keep packing lists for jobs, or do you keep toolboxes packed and ready to go? So a little more effort to access in the shop, but grab and go for out and about. What do you think? Okay. So this was the bane of my existence for a long time. I was horrible with tools. And if you ask Becky, she will tell you. I would leave things outdoors in the rain. Just just horrible all around. I was bad. So when when I first started running my handyman business and I was working, doing a lot of renovations at different rentals, I would take my tools, I would leave them somewhere, then, you know, they would get spread out and the homeowner who was also working with me at the same time would borrow something, they would get lost or I would borrow his stuff, just was never a good scenario. So what I ended up finding out for me 
I concentrated really, really hard on having a an everyday carry toolbox. It's a good little size toolbox, and in it is basically all the tools that I need for handyman jobs, for property management jobs. Then I also have a small plumbing toolbox, and then I have a few of the DeWalt organizers that I put my hardware in and all of my plumbing stuff. So those are kind of grab-and-go, you know, situation-specific toolboxes. But what that helps me do, two things. Number one, that toolbox goes with me to every single job site. It's compact enough that between that and my drill bag, those are the two things that I tend to take on almost every single job. They go in with me. I work out of them for the day. They come home with me that night. Bigger things like cordless tools, you know, some of the big gear like my chop saw and that kind of stuff. If I'm doing big flooring jobs, I will take that. I will set that up. My folding sawhorses, they go with me too. They will stay on the job site because that's the type of thing I don't typically need very often. So once they're set up, they're big and heavy, they're bulky, I get them in place. But for me, what I have found is small, compact, job-specific toolboxes. My grab-and-go one that works great for property management and works great for handyman jobs. But I need to be absolutely anal about bringing that back to my truck at the end of every single job. That way, because what ended up happening was I would leave my tools and then I would have a job to do at home on the weekend or I'd get called out for property management. Then I'd have to run and go and get it. So keeping it pared down, compact and mobile has worked great for me. I have a couple of drill bags. So if I do want to leave one, you know, one impact on site, that's great. I can grab a different drill bag and I'm good to go. But keeping things modular has helped a lot. I'm looking at upgrading to the Milwaukee Packout system. I know, a DeWalt guy using Milwaukee, but they work great. They're the best modular tool system out there. And what that'll allow me to do is bring my cordless tools on the job site with me and take them away at the end of the day as well. So I hope that helps. And then number two, uh, Andy also says, I heard you mention a while ago that you moved from a place where people didn't like paying for other things to a place where they did. I'd love to hear more about that. What was it like? What was good and bad about both? How does that fit in with the homesteader prepper types wanting to barter all the time? Says, I think I live in a don't want to pay each other type place. I've been here all my life, intrigued about different places. So for me, uh, there's this cheesy meme. You've heard me mention it before. It's got Will Smith's picture on it. And it says, the ultimate life hack is moving away from your hometown. So I've never really been 100% sure of whether I was able to build my successful business because I moved away from my hometown or because I moved to a town that was more conducive to paying for work. So if you do live in an area that is totally 100%, I know, you know, here's some beer, will you come work for me? It's going to be a bit hard. The first thing I would say is focus on finding customers that want to pay you. Find, you know, retired people that have a decent income or, you know, a, a bit of money on their hands so they're willing to pay you. Focus on that. Fill up your days with those type of customers. Stay away from friends, families, and neighbors because they're going to be the ones that are always just, you know, and maybe through fault of their own, maybe not, but stay away from them to get started. Fill your schedule up with it. Value your time. Know how much your time's worth so that when somebody says, hey, guess what? Uh, will you trade me this for that and it's not worth your time to do it? Just say, listen, I know, but I work 40, 50, 60 hours a week for the man 
and the extra time that I'm working, I have to be paid for that because that's the only free time I get. Or do what I did early on as well. Blame it on your wife. Say, listen, I would love to trade a little bit of labor for this or that, but I can't. I have to come home. My wife's going to say, Tim, why didn't you make money for this? Or say, hey, we're saving up a trip to go to Disney World, that kind of stuff. But don't throw the baby out with the bathwater because there are times that bartering and trading can be a good thing. Just let it be the exception to the rule, not the full rule all the time. So if you're working for an electrician and you know, hey, I need to wire up my garage, well then, hey, go ahead and trade. In the past, we we did some furniture moving for a guy, and I traded him for a like-new 24-foot fiberglass ladder. So don't, you know, don't just throw it away simply because you think, ah, you know, this town is that way. It is going to be harder if you've always lived there to focus on making money for that business, but make sure you value your time, you know how much it's worth, and then focus on the customers that are willing to pay you. It might be a little bit more work than if you live in an area where it isn't that way, but you will make it work, Andy. I believe in you. Okay, guys, I hope that helps. If you got questions, send them along to Jack. I'll gladly answer them for you. Anything on generator, solopreneur, landscaping, small business, whatever it is, send them to Jack. He'll send them over to me. I will answer them for you. And if you want to know more about what I'm up to, run by toolmantim.co and come by the workshop, the YouTube channel. We stream every single Thursday, Saturday, and Sunday evening, 7 p.m. Mountain Time. We're on Facebook. YouTube, Float, Odyssey, Telegram, Twitch, and a bunch of other places. So come by, check that out, and add me in your podcatcher. As always, guys, stay happy, stay healthy, and have a great week. So I'll let the first question just speak for itself. Tim did a great job with it. On the second one, my, I do have some, some more to add to this. This is exactly why I've always said the concept of barter is better is a truth that is also a lie. Barter is not better. Barter is only valuable when both sides need the thing that's being bartered. So if, if I had a fence that needed to be repaired, and Tim's my, uh, my, my handyman, and he just so happened to be available at a time when I had a great big surplus of, uh, of ducks, and I was going to cull some ducks, and he liked to eat duck, and, and he was willing to say, you know, a, a butchered duck to me is worth about... Uh, 15 bucks and it's $150 so 10 ducks and we're good and he's going to go home and he's going to eat duck and he's going to be completely happy with that well then it works but most of the time it doesn't and what you're selling into it sounds like in this market is a poverty consciousness and people want people want to use barter because they don't want to spend money because either they don't have money or they don't really value you enough to give it to you And that's usually more accurately the case. So I agree with Tim, like not throwing the baby out with the bathwater, but I, here's my rule. I wouldn't do barter for anybody that I hadn't done work for money for. That would be like the most powerful word in sales and marketing is no. So, so how much is this job going to be? It's going to be $235. Okay. Well, I was wondering if we could barter. No, I'm sorry. No, I wouldn't even entertain it. I'm sorry, no, that's I, I have costs to do my job and I have bills that need to be paid just like you do. And listen, I'll waste each other's time either and I think my price is fair and I can I can start tomorrow on it for you or I can start Thursday or whatever it is and I'll have it done and I will I will meet my commitments to you, but that's how much it's gonna be. No, sorry, I think you need to find somebody else. 
and don't waste any time any other way. Now, if I have a regular customer and they need some work done, and like if I'm out there and I'm doing, especially if, here's where I would really do this. I'm out there and I'm doing another job anyway. And I notice something, so I'm doing, because every handyman, you guys should be upselling. All my good handymans have always tried to upsell me, and sometimes they did and sometimes they didn't. They notice the thing, hey, have you noticed this? Yeah, I noticed that, but I hadn't got around to doing it myself yet. And a lot of times, some I could do. Well, I could do that while I'm here. You know, and they're like, and you're like, well, how much? And since they're already there, they're like, 75 bucks. Usually, like, yeah, go ahead. But if, if you're in that scenario and you also see something they have, it, it might work better when you're the one saying, hey, what are you going to do with all that stuff over there? You know, whatever they have. You know, it's been sitting there. You've been there three or four times. It hasn't moved. You know what? I could do this and I'll take that in exchange. I had, um, when my outdoor kitchen work was going in, some add on work. And I was getting rid of birds at the time. We were massively downsizing. I traded some geese and ducks for some add-on work. And it was kind of a mutual thing. And that works. But when you're, when you're making first contact and the first thing they want to do is trade their junk to you, no. No, you're running a business. Business runs on cash flow. And cash flow is necessary for you to do your job properly. And you do not have time to waste. And there are always people willing to pay for your service. So if you're only finding people that want to haggle, talk to more people. Moving on. And that's exactly what I used to train my salespeople too, because don't think this is unique to a handyman business. I had salespeople that were dealing with hagglers and we're talking like $200,000 and up uh, network cabling installations. Like there's plenty of money out there, guys. Look out that window, that whole city down there. That's your office. Spend more time in it. Talk to more people and you'll find people that aren't going to be haggling with you or what they're haggling over is reasonable. Right? We can always come to some agreement, but if you're only, every time you come to me, you're trying to bring me a deal instead of saying, hey, I, you know, here's my forecast, you're not talking to enough people. Moving on, let's talk about something that's uncomfortable to have and sometimes uncomfortable to talk about, but it's a real problem at times, constipation. Hi, Joe Alton, MD here, also known as Dr. Bones of the survival website doomandbloom.net, co-author of the 2022 Book Excellence Award winner in medicine, the fourth edition of the Survival Medicine Handbook, plus designer of quality medical kits at store.doomandbloom.net. In difficult times, storing a good amount of long shelf life food is a wise move. Folks in the preparedness community have for decades filled pantries and freezers with enough food to get them through any disaster. Long-lasting food items, however, can sometimes cause digestive issues when combined with the stresses associated with apocalyptic settings. One of these is constipation. Constipation is usually defined as having less than three bowel movements a week. Stools tend to be hard, dry, lumpy, and difficult to pass. Patients complain of abdominal bloating and discomfort. In some cases, there's significant pain associated with prolonged efforts to actually have that bowel movement. Afterwards, there may be a feeling that evacuation was incomplete. One-sixth of the general population experiences constipation with percentages rising significantly higher with age. There are millions of doctor visits due to problems relating to it, and 250 million U.S. dollars are spent on treatment every year. What happens in the body that leads to constipation? Well, we absorb nutrients as food moves through the digestive tract. Partially digested food travels from the stomach to the small intestine, and then the large intestine, also called the colon. Your large intestine absorbs water from digested contents, leading to solid feces, also called stool. When food moves too slowly through the colon, too much water is absorbed, causing stool to become dry and hard in consistency. That makes it difficult to push out. 
Constipation is not a disease in itself, but it can be a symptom of a number of dietary and medical problems. Common causes of constipation include diet. Constipation is often caused by failing to stay well hydrated and maintaining a diet rich in high-fiber foods like fruits and vegetables. A diet consisting only of high-fat meats, dairy products, eggs, and sugary items can also possibly predispose you to having problems with bowel movements. You can see how difficult it might be to maintain a balanced diet in a post-disaster situation where your choice of foods and the availability of them or even water may be limited. Prepared families have a store of preserved foods in case of a major catastrophe. These tend to have low fiber content, however, that leads to constipation. If water is rationed, dehydration can contribute to worsening the situation. Indeed, the family medic must enforce the adequate intake of clean, disinfected fluids in order to prevent the problem. Disease is another cause of constipation. Many conditions can cause it. GI disorders like irritable bowel syndrome, diverticulosis, obstruction, cancer, and structural defects. Hormonal problems like hypothyroidism, diabetes, and kidney disease. Nerve disorders like spinal cord injury, stroke, multiple sclerosis, and Parkinson's disease. Diseases that affect multiple organs such as autoimmune systemic lupus, scleroderma, and amyloidosis, and even pregnancy. Many medicines have constipation as a likely adverse reaction, including pain medicines like opiates, non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs like ibuprofen and naproxen, antacids containing calcium or aluminum, iron supplements, antidepressants, blood pressure medicines like calcium channel blockers and beta blockers, diuretics, anti-seizure medications, anti-diabetic medications, and anti-nausea medications. Wow, that's a lot. And this is just a partial list. Before a disaster knocks out medical infrastructure, maybe you should ask your physician if your meds are causing your constipation. Lifestyle is also a factor. Many people have behaviors that predispose them to constipation. They include not getting enough exercise, irregular routines that affect the composition and timing of meals, frequent travel schedules, stress, ignoring the urge to go due to work or other responsibilities, and this is important, ignoring opportunities to hydrate. What's the right number of bowel movements to have? It's different for each person. For some, it can mean bowel movements twice a day. For others, having movements three times a week is normal. In most cases, constipation is manageable with simple measures. Hydrate. You'll be surprised to know the quantity of fluids recommended by U.S. health authorities. Well, the daily fluid intake should be 3.7 liters for men and 2.7 liters for women. Some of these fluids, by the way, are present in dietary solid foods. Drink an extra two to four glasses of water a day if you're constipated. You might change your diet, add more fruits, vegetables, and other high-fiber foods to your daily routine. Eat foods known to help you go, like prunes, prune juice, and bran. Watch the number of high-fat foods like cheese that you consume daily. On the toilet, certain positions are more effective in evacuating your bowels. Raising your feet, squatting, or leaning back may help. Don't spend more than 10 minutes on the toilet at a time, as excess pressure on the anus can lead to hemorrhoids. Interestingly, statistics show that taking your phone to the bathroom doubles the amount of time you actually spend on the toilet. Exercise, that's important. Get moving and your bowels may do the same. There are over-the-counter options in terms of supplements, stool softeners, laxatives, and enemas that are options when you need extra help. And for the survival medic, they're useful items for survival storage. It's important to know that frequent use of these strategies, however, can worsen the situation. Only use this stuff when necessary. Fiber supplements include Metamucil, Fibogel, Benefiber, Citrusel, stool softeners like Colace and Surfac, oral bowel muscle stimulants like Ducalax or Senecot, 
laxative suppositories, glycerin, uh, Duclax also has laxative suppositories, and enemas, saline solution, sodium phosphate, mineral oil, or some of these. Natural options, there are a number of herbal teas that are thought to be helpful for those suffering from constipation. They include senna, dandelion, cascara, and peppermint tea. Green tea also helps. Black coffee is also commonly used to help stimulate a bowel movement. It's important to recognize when constipation may be a sign of something worse. While most cases of constipation can be treated without major interventions, certain symptoms should alert you to seek modern medical care if it's available. Blood in the stool or from the anus, constant abdominal pain or distension, inability to pass gas, nausea and vomiting, fever, and weight loss. This is Joel and MD, that old Dr. Bones, wishing you the best of health and good times or bad. Thanks for listening. Hey, if you support my mission to put a medically prepared person in every family, please check out our entire line of medical kits, individual supplies, and personal protection gear at store.doomandbloom.net. You'll be glad you did. Next up, let's talk about buying a belt grinder uh, as a knife maker, but I also want you to realize that like a belt grinder is just a tool, has a lot of purposes, and this is a, you know, Patrick Rohrman is a professional knife maker, and When he invests in a piece of equipment, he's analyzing its productivity based on how well it will serve him for the, for like, hopefully for the life of his business. And this is a good lesson in how to evaluate a purchase. Uh, and I'll, and I'll have a little bit of a thought on that in just a minute. Hey guys, Patrick with MT Knives coming to you today with today's expert counsel question of the week. This week's question comes from Gordon. He says, I want a 2x72 belt grinder for bladesmithing and other operations. Suggestions about features and brands would be appreciated. Details. I'd like to add a 2x72 grinder to my shop for bladesmithing for forge knives as well as stock removal knives. There would be other uses since this is a metal shop. Like many things, there are so many choices that the decision is harder. I've, I have a budget of about 2k, but could go a little higher if it makes sense. I have I have used these in the past, all vertical with flat platinum in front. With your experience, what should I be looking for? Thanks. Well, hey, thanks for the question, Gordon. Um, I have. I'm going to start with you know what I did originally. I built my own grinder out of an old tread, treadmill. Um, <clears throat> you know, it's home built. You know, they always say you go to school on the first one. And, you know, it wasn't so great, right? It worked, it functioned, and it got me, you know, started. But it wasn't very long before I went ahead and I spent the money on a TW90. And I'll tell you what, I've never regretted that purchase. That machine has paid for itself time and time again. Now, it's not really in the budget that you're looking at. Uh, it's going to be closer to $4,000. But the options that it comes with, it's just, it's a lot of bang for your buck. There's a lot of different knife grinders on the market. And really over the last 10 years, There's been a lot of new companies um, who have started out making knife grinders. Kind of the original uh, old school knife grinders would have been your Burr King. And they make a lot of industrial 
grinders. They're going to be what you see in a lot of factories. And they have a lot of guards and safety stuff that, quite frankly, most uh, guys like you and me are probably going to remove and never put back on. Um, <clears throat> but, you know, when you're when you're talking about employees and OSHA and all that kind of stuff, you got to have that stuff. So, the Burr Kings are uh, pretty expensive. They're they're close to your budget. I think um, looking at a Burr King 960, it's uh, twenty two six uh, two thousand two hundred sixty three dollars and eighty five cents. You know, I'm sure you're going to have some shipping and stuff. But the problem with that too is that that grinder. Um, I'm not sure what size wheel it has on it, but it's not going to be something that you're going to change the wheels out, right? Um, it does have a flat platen as well. You can move it around. Um, I believe that's what Bill Davis had. So I've I've ground on a Burger King before. It's a nice grinder, um, but I really like the versatility of the TW90. It's got the small wheel attachments, the flat platen. You can lay it horizontal, um, use it vertical or horizontal. So there's a lot of versatility there for a one, you know, if you're going to have one grinder in your shop. There's um, another big grinding company is Broadbeck. Um, I've used one, not, not a whole lot. It's got a shock style piston for tensioner and I wasn't real uh I didn't like it. I didn't like the I didn't like the tensioner. Uh however I didn't have a lot of time on the machine either. That's close to your budget. It looks like it's about twenty four hundred dollars. Um you know but with all these things there's tons of different options on the tooling you're going to spend, I've spent a lot of money on different grinding wheels, different attachment arms. Um, so that's just kind of the entry level. <clears throat> Another, so we got the TW90, we got the Broadbeck, we got um, KMG. I've never used one, don't really uh, know that I would try one. Um, you got Burking. And let me think. Will Wilmont is another brand of knife grinder. Uh, I don't believe I've used a Wilmont either, but I know a lot of knife makers do. There are so many options. I'm just going to speak on what I've personally used. That would be the Burking, the TW90, um, the Broadbeck, and I think you know I've. I've probably ground on some other machines too, but they weren't impressive enough for me me to remember. Um, so I hope that helps out. I tell you what. Oh, uh, Alex Steele actually has a a knife grinder that he's selling now. I think it's a kit. And that was going to something I was going to say on the the Broadbeck. The friend of mine who bought one. <clears throat> It requires quite a bit of assembly. Um, the nice thing about the TW90 is it's pretty well turnkey, out of the box. Set it up, bolt it down, plug it in, you're ready to go. So, 
most all of these grinders, I would I wouldn't I would suggest definitely you want a variable speed. Most all of these are using a sealed three phase motor, uh, anywhere from a horse and a half to three horsepower, and a VFD controller. I would recommend a two two horsepower or more, um, especially you know if you want to be making something and making it efficiently. Um, when I started out, I'd I use my grinder in the lower settings a lot. Um, now, half of my grinding's done at 100% speed. Um, time is money, and you know the faster the faster you remove material, the more confident you get on the grinder, you're going to stick with the coarser grits and the higher speeds to really uh, remove material quickly. The, the nice thing about t, uh, a 2x72 grinder, too, is you're going to find yourself using it all of the time and wondering how you ever lived without one, whether you're grinding you know, wood or metal. Um, they are just, it's probably one of the most useful tools in my shop. So um, I personally would buy the TW90 again. Um, I also see, though, an advantage to having dedicated machines. So if I like have one set up with just a flat platen, have one set up with a 10 or 12 inch wheel, um, eventually I'll probably have three or four 2x72s in my shop. So hope this has been helpful. Thanks for the question. Once again, this has been Patrick with MT Knives. Have a great day. You know, when I when I look at purchasing something, especially anything that's going to cost, you know, if we're over 500 bucks, I'm probably spending more money than I have to. Here's an example. Uh, right now I'm getting ready to buy a chamber vac sealer. And the one, I've decided the brand I'm going to buy and the model I'm going to buy. And there's a model that would save me about $150, and the chamber size is just a little bit smaller. And so I could spend, and, and I'm, I'm not at a point right now where I'm like, ah, screw it, just spend whatever. You know, I, I'm kind of in like, hey, I'm not broke or nothing, but like, let's mitigate our spending somewhat. I, I go through periods of time where I'm like that because, you know, it's just, I think it's wise to do from a financial management standpoint. But I also just look at that and go, I am never going to regret spending the extra 150 bucks other than the second that I do it. And, and I'm buying a long-term purchase of a high-end piece of equipment. And every time I use it, if I get the smaller one where it's just a little smaller than I want, I'm going to wish I would have spent the extra 150 bucks, And I won't be in a position to change it by spending the other 150 bucks. I'm going to have to go out and buy out a complete new one, then try to sell the other one off, and I'll probably never get what I had into it. And in the end, it will cost me more, or I'll have to live with basically a Type 1 error. So I encourage you, when you're buying things, always be frugal, never be cheap. And frugal is about the lifetime cost of a thing and the the profit the thing can generate. If you're a knife maker with a grinder, well, how much, how many, how many more knives can I make per quarter? 
And what does that do to the bottom line? But when it comes to like your lifestyle, when it comes to like your home production, what is the value of preserving your food, things like that, you have to evaluate it from that standpoint. And be very careful that you don't say something like, well, the value of that's subjective. I can't really put a value on it. Yes, you can. You put a subjective value on it. And so either you can make a simple decision, and for me, with the vac, vac chamber sealer, it was, you know what, I just, I just know. But if you're not sure, there's no shame in any major purchase in building an Excel spreadsheet and making comparisons. Because it's just the way to be financially astute. And with that, that'll roll perfectly into my segment for today. And we'll be doing that via a live stream that went out on YouTube just a few moments ago. And we are live. Welcome, folks, to today's live stream, which will be rather short compared to what they usually are. It will be just my segment for the Expert Council Q&A. If you're finding this video after the live stream's done, if it's all been done for at least an hour, down there in the video notes, you'll see a link. If you click that link, you'll find the entire episode. Today was a Expert Council Q&A show of the Survival Podcast. We have a lot of really great stuff. Uh, Dr. Ron Paul and his crew are on Nick Ferguson talking about goat terrorism. Yeah, it's a thing. You'll, it, it's, it's not what it sounds like, though, but it's a good thing. Tim Toolman Cook, we've got some stuff on Grinders from Patrick Rohrman, uh, some stuff from Doc Bone, so it's worth checking out. Anyway, my segment today is, as you saw, Galt's Gulch. A new Galt's Gulch is hiding in plain sight. So what do I mean by that? And for those of you that aren't big on the whole Bitcoin thing, yes, it it does go there, but it doesn't necessarily have to to explain it. So I'm going to not beat up the Bitcoin thing with this. I was going to talk about what Galt's was Galt's Gulch was in in the book, what Galt's Gulch became in modern libertarian circles what a brain drain is, and why Galt's Gulch was not possible until now, and it wasn't possible in either iteration prior to now. And then you decide how you would do it if you want to write Bitcoin out of it. You decide how you're going to program gold to do it for you gold bugs. All right, it's up to you. Uh, but the message itself is more about the time, the place, the technology, and enabling us to exist right in front of everybody and still do our own thing in a way that's very difficult to stop. So let's start off with what the original concept of Galt's Gulch was. And, and it's not what most libertarians think. I find a lot of libertarians that talk about it must not have ever read the book. So the original Galt's Gulch was John Galt, Galt and the other, you know, who wasn't really John Galt. Anyway, the, the, the industrialists, the people that actually made things, that did things, that enabled society to function – just left. They all just went away. They didn't go to an actual physical gulch. They didn't go to a place and like say, hey, we're going to like run our own little fiefdom or whatever. They just quit. It was kind of like a produ high, highly productive, industrious, industrial person, general strike. We just, you know, you don't like what we're doing. We'll stop doing it. And maybe you'll understand how important we are to society. And this evolved in modern libertarian circles to the idea of well, what we'll all do is the, you know, kind of Bitcoin Citadel concept or the libertarian utopia compound concept. We'll all get together. We'll form our freedom cells. Call them whatever you want. We'll exit and build. We'll go to this place 
and we'll all live together in our libertarian commune or whatever it is. And, and we'll all have our own commerce with each other with parallel economies and screw them. And then all of our little communes will all work together. All our little whatever you want to call them communities, plant communities. And, and there's nothing wrong with plant communities or anything like that if you want to do that. But from a standpoint of actually creating a gulch, gulch type of thing, it's not practical. It's not practical. To understand the real significance of a gulch, gulch, you have to understand a term that Brian used at least 10 times on Tuesday's podcast, Bitcoin Breakout Edition, he and, he and me and Guy Swan on. And the word was brain drain. And as I re-listened to that episode myself, because it was a very deep, very, very, it was an amazing episode. I knew if I got all three of us together, it would be that. And even though I was part of it, I've had to re-listen to it. Like, I missed that, even though I was there when it was being said, right? And when I heard Brian kept saying brain drain, I, I've, I finally had the, the, the click. And I don't know that he's had the click yet. This is, this is a real Galtz Gulch. A Galtz Gulch is the productive members they refrain from doing business in your world, but then they have to function. Like, we're not all John Galt. We're not all ballers. We don't have billions of dollars. We can't all run off to some island and just not show up for work for six months, right? We have to be able to continue to function. And people generally don't move unless there's an extreme circumstances causing the movement. I'm about to say something and someone will be like, nah, man, no. You probably live where you most want to live right now. You probably, you know, no, I want to get out of here, but why don't you leave? You'll be like, my job, you'll be like, my family. And, okay, so because of those things, you have chosen to stay where you are versus to move. If no one's got to, if you don't go out your door and there's not somebody sitting there with a machine gun going, you're allowed to function inside your city limits, and if you leave, I'm going to shoot you. As long as you don't have that, you're choosing to be where you are. And so getting people to all move to, like, some kind of a place is difficult. And when you have extreme circumstances, they will. So extreme circumstances like the crap that we just went through, right, that we just went through with all this COVID's crap, it did cause people to use the freedom of movement within the republic. Illinois, New York, California have had net losses in population. There's actually a congressional, like two of the old-time, uh, like uh, gangster-level uh, I can't remember who they are now, but I think Nadler's one of them, like uh, congressional clowns on the Democrat side. They now have to fight each other. It's like, the, you know, they've been on the same side of the mafia and like they've got to throw them in a room and let them fight each other now because their districts are getting combined because they lost so many people that under the redistricting process, one of them's got to go. On the other side of it, states like Florida and Texas uh, have had populations grow as people flee that and, and let the politics of they're bringing their liberal shit with them, whatever. Just This is just what happened. But that's a rare thing. That's what it takes. But it is a brain drain because generally the people that leave are the people that have the means to leave. And the people that have the means to leave have some level of wealth. And they generally have some level of wealth because they're productive enough to have a level of wealth. And they're smart enough to be productive enough to have a level of wealth. In other words, they're the most intelligent and productive slice of a demographic. That doesn't mean that every one of them is at the top 1%. It just means they're all coming out of like the top 20. If you know anything about Pareto's law, you know how significant that is. And this happens in countries around the world all the time. And it's a big part of why a lot of these shithole tyrannies can never fit. Like, why don't you stay there and work on your own problem? Because it can't be done because the brain drain already happened. 
So when a country begins to go more and more totalitarian, people that live in that country that are willing to take risk, entrepreneurs are willing to take risk. Now, other types of risk include like getting the hell out. People that are smart enough to figure out how to get out, how to preserve their wealth when they go, and have enough of a productive capability that some other countries like, yeah, we'll take you. They all leave first. That's the brain drain. And then you're left with the lower tier as a full majority. You have idiocracy in a modern sense. And then that's what the rulers are left with. And then even if you get a decent ruler, it's very hard to fix. Now, the problem with this, again, though, is that people are hard to physically get to move. And then let's be honest. Everybody out there that talks shit about doing this, you partake in their system every day to some degree. You go out to a nice restaurant, you just partook in their system. You order something off Amazon, you just partook in their system. I'm not saying you're wrong. I'm just saying you are. You live in a neighborhood and you have a bank with a mortgage in their system and you paid your mortgage, you partook in their system. You did everything you could to pay as little taxes as possible, but you still paid your taxes because you're not stupid and you don't want to wear silver bracelets and go to jail, you partook in their system. And the reality is the system is so huge right now to live with any quality of life to some degree, we have to partake in their system to some degree. The question has always been, how much of it do we need and how much of our lives can we move outside of it? That's what parallel economies are all about. So now think about the fact that we now have a programmable form of money. And this is a term that until like the last couple months, I always loved it. I always knew it was huge, but I could not articulate exactly what it would mean. It was one of those things like, I, I get it. But so what? If you have programmable money, and we've now built out these layered solutions, we can literally program money to do what we want it to do based on the actions of ourselves and others. This has never been done before. This has never been done before. That is not how the U.S. dollar works. It's not how gold works. None of this, nothing else has ever worked this way. To where I can say, if this thing happens, do this with the money. So if Bill does the thing that Bill said he would do, Bill gets the money and there's no intermediary. There's just a decision that is already predetermined. And Bill knew that when he went into it. So now Bill takes an action and Bill gets paid. Possibly in a very small amount, possibly in a very large amount possibly in a lot of small amounts over time. So we, I think mo, we use Fountain as a good explanation because so many of you guys are listening to the podcast on Fountain now, and you know that people on there every day are sending me boostergrams or they're streaming uh, value to me. They're listening to my podcast, and they're sending me one Satoshi an hour or one Satoshi a minute. That's a fraction of a penny a minute they're able to transact in. And that sounds like a little thing, but it's not. It's a massive thing. And if you start thinking about all this terminology that's been thrown around in cryptocurrency circles, it's basically shitcoin terminology that shouldn't be, like DAO, Decentralized Autonomous Organization. But when I had Guy and Brian on this week, and I set up the splits in advance, that was a DAO. We didn't need a shitcoin. We didn't need a token. 
We didn't need to write a bunch of smart contracts. We had an app that enabled a process to occur. And, and so this is really easy to see at the content and information level. If you're an infopreneur, you're an entertainer, you're a musician, you're a comedian, you're a podcaster, you're an artist, all of those things, this makes it really like, it's okay, I get that, but what about me? Right? You're the guy that can build a house. Don't think that you're excluded from this. And so what we're actually creating is, you know, they talk about Web3 and the metaverse. This is the metaverse. The metaverse isn't wearing goggles and thinking you're in, on vacation somewhere and enriching Mark Zuckerberg. That's just, that's just playing with technology. A metaverse is us being able to use the infrastructure that we commonly refer to as the Internet to exchange value. And it doesn't matter what that value is. Imagine being able to do handyman work for somebody. Like we have questions for Tim Tim uh, Toolman on, on the show today. And be paid instantly as you complete the work. What if, you know, one of your problems when you're a contractor is materials? What if the materials were paid for as they were used? And we're, we're a ways off from the ship. We're not that far. And what if whenever you were interfered with by the state, you could legitimately say, I, I don't know. I'm just here doing this thing. Well, how do you get paid? I don't know. It just shows up. I'm not even sure what it's for. Well, who else is involved? I, I don't know. Why don't you go find them? You can tell me. And, and, and you think I'm just kidding here. I'm not. When you start thinking about running a restaurant this way, and people could on the fly decide, yeah, you know what, I could use some extra money today, and look on an app and see, but wow, there's there's a there's a wait at this place. Instead of going out to eat at it, I can go work at it and show up and work. How are you going to handle that? I don't know yet. This is the thing: we don't need an answer to all these questions yet. If something can be programmed, it will be. It, it's conceivable that certain people would have a pre-qualification that they have whatever skill set they need and a reputation that says this person is qualified to wait on tables of an establishment at this level and higher, right? Or this person has the credentials necessary to go behind your bar and serve drinks and not get you arrested. That's all you need to know. And that person could literally just go swipe a QR code, walk behind a bar, start working, and swipe out. And what else can you do it with? What else can you do it with? Don't be limited by your current understanding of the world, but understand this. All of this stuff, who's going to do it first? Smart people. It doesn't mean you're dumb if you resist it. It's of the smart people, right? When you start saying, like, if you look at you, you, you if you literally group people by IQ, a hell of a lot more people are going to come out of like the top 20% than out of the mid-tier of the people that will come. That doesn't mean nobody that's smart will stay behind. But you're going to pull from that demographic first. Risk takers and people willing to do something new and different and people that have a strong desire to keep what they have, to, to, to be able to earn what they deserve and keep what they've earned. That's your first group of people. Now, what is that? That is a brain drain. It's the same effect as when the smartest, most industrious people left Iraq and Iran a long time ago. 
I'm not putting down anybody that's still there. I don't pretend to know their plight, but I do know the people that got out were people with means, who had the intelligence to gain the means in the first place, who were willing to take the risk, and who were able to look at the writing on the wall and say, if I don't do this now, I'm going to get trapped. And that's happened over and over with international immigration since the dawn of time. You can look at all the propaganda about well, all they're coming here for is free welfare and all. You're talking about an aberration from the norm because our country's dumb enough that we've created that situation, by the way, on purpose. We've done that again, the people in charge of this nation, everything you look at and say, Oh, they're so stupid. I can't believe they did that. They're not stupid. They knew exactly what they were doing. And you have to look for why did they want this to happen? They want to lower the standard of living in America and make us equal to the rest of the world because we believe, they believe we deserve to suffer. And no matter what happens to us, they do not suffer. That's why. So you don't need to worry about trying to stop it by going to vote for somebody because that's not going to matter. But the new Galt Gulch, which is hiding in plain sight, earning value and exchanging value in a means by which you are unstoppable and ungovernable. The same people that say be ungovernable then turn around and re reject this technology. This is insane. This is insane. If you have money in a bank account, your government can take it from you. They can lock it up and prevent you from getting to it. We have never had a form of property, and that's what Bitcoin is, is a form of property before, that is as defensible by any individual as it is by any corporation or any large government entity or any very rich person. There's a saying about guns. God made men and Sam Colt made them equal. Meaning when Colt made the peacekeeper and the average guy could afford a six-shooter, he became an equal man. He might be little, he might be small, might be a little bit crippled, might be blind in one eye like me. That's why my eye drifts for some of you that have to ask about it, right? But now he was equal. Good marketing. Untrue. Untrue. Do you guys have the same gun? The one that knows how to use it better will be superior. They're not equal. One may not be able to pull the trigger when he needs to. And that one man who thinks he's not an equal because he has a firearm, how's he going to do against an army? Even a small, ill-equipped army. Ask Butch and Sundance if you know that story. Again, it's good marketing. It certainly is an equalizer. That guy is certainly better equipped to be defensible than he is without it. But it's still that fast to be outgunned. Stealing information is hard especially when everybody's information is decentralized and different. We've never had that before. We've never had the ability before for a brain drain, for a person to say, all my stuff is just stuff. My wealth is 12 words in my head. I think I'll leave and walk away with the clothes on their back. And take their wealth with them. That's never existed in history before. And then the ability to take that wealth and break it down into a piece that is so tiny it cannot even be measured with the declining value of the United States penny. It's so small. And program it to move at the speed of light anywhere in the world based on a set 
series of parameters that is determined by only the individuals who, who choose to voluntarily interact with each other. And so you can sit right in your blue hair HOA and be an anarchist in the, in a, a techno anarchist. And the people that do it first are going to be the smart people. The people that do it first are going to be the risk takers. The people that do it first are going to be those who are ambitious. The people who build the technology, the people that sell the, the shovels and the picks and the dynamite and the blasting caps to the miners will build the towns. And the towns will be virtual. And the virtual nation that I've been telling you about since 2014, the virtual nations are being built right now And if you're doing anything with this technology at all, if you're running your own node, if you're using layer three apps, if you're using something as simple as the fold card, you don't even understand that there's lightning on the backside of it that enables it. And you're earning Bitcoin because you chose to shop with an Amazon gift card you bought with your fold card instead of an Amazon gift card you bought from Kroger's. You're part of it. You're building it. You're building a form of wealth that you can defend infinitely and that you can move at will anywhere you want at the speed of light, including forward in time to further generations. That's Galt's Gulch. It's finally here. And I welcome you on our journey as we continue to build it together. I'll catch up with you guys tomorrow with an episode of Outback with Jack. Remember, you can get... The entire episode of this uh, today's podcast uh, at the Survival Podcast link in the video notes will be available about one hour from now. With that, we have wrapped up another episode. I want to remind you guys, you can always help support the show by doing your online shopping at tspaz.com. That's T-S-P-A-Z, tspaz.com. Today's item of the day is the same as it was for the last few days. Because a lot of you have bought it and you've already been giving me feedback and saying, yeah, you're right, this stuff is better than it has a right to be. It's Lowry's Seasoned Pepper. You can find it at tspaz.com or just go to the survivalpodcast.com and scroll down below today's episode. You'll see the write-up on it. I, I, I really can't explain why it's as good as it is. And I'm not big on mass-produced spices and seasoning mixes and stuff like that. I really generally make my own. I actually even use this, and I give several different rubs that I make using this as a component. I use it by itself, just adding salt on burgers. It's fantastic. It's cheap. And remember, even if you're not picking that up, anything that you buy, that you start your online shopping at tspaz.com first, you'll help support us. I also want to uh, remind you guys, we do, once again, have the troll sale running until Sunday at midnight, Central Standard Time, discount code TROLL, get MSB for a whopping 30 bucks a year, and lock the renewal rate in when you do so. With that, again, I'll be back tomorrow with another episode of the show. Thanks for tuning in today, and have a great day. They gonna bail you out or just run you around? They said you should have a house the American way. A dollar down, a dollar a month.